Hey guys, welcome to another episode of In the Trenches with Andrew Taylor. In this episode, I interviewed Dr. Aaron Wallace. He has a PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Northern Colorado. And I heard him speak over a year ago at a conference on cannabis and the science behind it, what it does to the brain, how it affects the body. And I've never met a person who knows more than Aaron. And I thought it would be really important to get him on and interview him for the podcast. He's extremely knowledgeable, well-researched, articulates his thoughts really well. Uh, There's a lot of strong opinions out there and thoughts on cannabis use. And it's good just to get to the heart of the facts. Uh, We don't really go into uh, opinions on it, good or bad, legal or not. We're really just focusing here on what it does to young people and what everyone should really be aware of. We also talk about motivation and some of the science behind that as well, um, which he also has a lot of information on, which I really enjoyed. So I hope you find this useful. I'm uh, glad you joined and uh, please enjoy. Aaron, hey, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, good. It's good to be here. Great, man. Well, um, so I sat in on your workshop at the Yada Conference in Idaho last fall, and it was hands down the most informative, helpful workshop on marijuana, cannabis, weed, pot, whatever you want to call it, um, that I've ever seen. And it was really, it, it really helped me a lot. And um, I, that's kind of what I, I'm hoping to gain today out of this podcast. And I think just to frame the conversation for those that are listening, what I don't want to do is get into a, like what we don't want to do <laughs> um, is we don't want to get into this like legal or not, you know, what should we be doing with marijuana? What, what I really want to talk about is what you and I see every day. And that is young people coming into our programs that are abusing marijuana. And that's the conversation for today, right? I think you and I are on the same page with that. And and so in that sense, when we talk about cannabis, um, there's a lot of terms that surround this, you know, and what are the terms that we, you want to use and you think are relevant terms when we're talking about people who are smoking pot, using cannabis to get high recreationally versus, you know, maybe CBD oil and, and those kinds of things. Do you, do you have a simple way to kind of differentiate and clarify that conversation? You know, unfortunately, I don't because it's not a simple topic, right? So we, we can talk about um, when it's being abused or misused or if the use is problematic. But um, that's that's actually the, the whole point of having these kind of conversations is to understand that they are nuanced. Um, so I don't I don't have a convenient way of doing that, unfortunately. Okay, no problem, man. So when we talk about marijuana, what is is what's the term you want to use? Cannabis? Is that kind of the all general encompassing term that we could use? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question because I've been trying to shift my language. I grew up calling it marijuana and um, cannabis is, is not only is that the scientific and diagnostic term, but it's also one that is um, doesn't have as much baggage as marijuana. Marijuana is a pejorative term that was used um, earlier in the century when we were thinking that the majority of cannabis was coming from Mexico and so there are racial undertones to it. And so even though it's in common parlance, I really want to shift my use towards cannabis. Okay, cool. Great. That works for me too. So cannabis, 
those that are using it recreationally, what's what's going on in terms of the brain? What's happening? In in let me back up maybe one more step. We all know people who are using cannabis uh, recreationally, functioning just fine, having a positive experience, and we know people that are uh, throwing their lives away with it. And that could be true of a lot of things we could talk about in life, right? But can you help us kind of just start to understand where that line is and how, how it can be destructive to people and, and where do we go with that? Yeah, so the, when, I'm, when I'm asking myself what is a destructive use and what isn't, I actually am avoiding uh, necessarily frequency, potency, regularity. I'm looking more at impact. How is this impacting a person's life? Are they functioning? Are they? Do they have a social network? Do they have the ability to engage in all the activities of daily living? Um, do they have the ability to maintain ambition and motivation? And that's not the only way to tell whether or not this is harmful for someone, but that's really the first step. Um, what we don't want to do is approach that conversation with the assumption that it's harmful. And that being said, by the time most people get into treatment with, with you or I, they have an issue with it. Um, most of the people that are using it, as you said, recreationally without too much impact, actually aren't in treatment. So but there's a reasonable assumption that by the time you get to the level of treatment that you and I provide, there is an assumption that somehow it's been problematic for you. So just talking about what it does is, well, we can take that step by step, but really it's hard to pin down a specific effect because unlike something like cocaine or alcohol that has a really discrete effect on you um, biologically, THC has um, also comes in marijuana with 86 or more different cannabinoids, which also have an effect on you and the different profile and how much of one concentration of a cannabinoid or not um, can really change how it affects you. For instance, if you have a high amount of CBD and CBN, which are two of the more common cannabinoids, in conjunction with THC, it can make it two to four times stronger. The effects overall two to four times stronger. So it's really difficult to say this is what it does, but I'll do my best through the course of this conversation to highlight the major effects that we know about and to identify where there's still debate. For someone that's listening right now and knows nothing about this, what's THC? THC is uh, delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol, um, which is the main psychoactive ingredient in cannabis. And that's the one that gets you high. That's the one that people feel most often. And you're also hearing about CBD, cannabidiol, which is um, something that's being actively researched. And there's a lot of really interesting effects that it has, especially when it's working in conjunction with THC. So the, the takeaway message is, this is complex, and you've got to know what your clients are using and what their sources and concentrates and all of that. Um, generally, you can say that THC has an effect in freeing up dopamine in the brain. It's not that it makes your brain produce more, but it blocks receptors for other neurotransmitters that allows your brain to soak up more of the dopamine that it's already producing. But one of the things that it's blocking is a neurotransmitter called GABA. And GABA is your brain's primary method for stopping impulses. So if you want to prevent yourself from doing something, say you have ADHD and you want to inhibit an impulse, 
say you're trying to change a behavior, modify a diet, anything along those lines, you need GABA to do that. And if you are using cannabis over time, your brain stops producing as much GABA because it's blocking those receptors and your brain says, well, I'm getting something that looks like GABA from the outside. Why would I waste my resources making my own? And then you don't have the resources to make those changes to inhibit those behaviors, whatever they may be. And then you actually end up using more cannabis because you feel like that helps and your brain is fooled into thinking that it is helping. And then over time, you really just deplete your stock of that utterly. And it can be really hard to come off of it at that point. And that's where the neurochemistry of addiction comes in, right? And I think it's fascinating because a lot of the drugs that are extremely addictive, there is that dopamine flood, right? And it's, you know, you're, you're getting the dopamine flood into those neurotransmitters, and that's where the brain starts going, we don't have any more dopamine. And we can't make it on our own as easily, right? The, the factory gets messed up. And so that's not happening with weed, but it's the GABA that's starting to really screw with the brain. It sounds like, and so cocaine would trigger a cascade of release of dopamine, whereas what cannabis does is it increases the amount of dopamine you're absorbing, but only because it's freeing up other receptors. So it isn't that, you know, that punch that you might feel from other harder drugs, but it still has a similar. And so is this why there's a lot of arguments, and this is something we can get into maybe in a minute or now that. You know, growing up, everybody would say it's not addictive. And I've had, I've sat down with people abusing cannabis that are saying, oh, it's addictive. And I've had people that are abusing and saying it's not addictive. I can tell the difference, right? So where do you stand on that? And how do you make sense of those conversations? I think fundamentally, any time that regular use of a substance causes your body to adjust its own production of um, you know, neurochemicals or change structural linkages within the brain that we call that addictive, right? Food can be addictive. So mm-hmm. uh, behaviors can be addictive. So I, I, I think that there's a narrow way in which we view addiction. But I think part of the reason that cannabis is so confusing for people in terms of addiction is because it has an extremely long half-life, which means that it takes more than a day, about 1.3 days, for half of the substance to leave you. And that's on average. And if you have a, a you know a more body fat, it'll take even longer because it bonds the fat in your body. So you're seeing what what you're seeing is where after the acute psychoactive effects are gone, it's still in your body for over a day after that. And so if you were doing, you know, I only smoke once every two days, you're still actually building that up in your body. And one of the things that I see that can be most frustrating for my clients is that they're like. I used it fine for six months, occasionally, recreationally. It wasn't a problem. And then over the course of a month, I went from using it a handful of times to um, using it every day. And I didn't even really realize that it happened. And that's because underlying this process of infrequent use is a slow build. And even if you're not feeling it happening, you are then suddenly becoming more and more dependent on it, increasing your tolerance. And then that can cascade pretty rapidly. And on the other side of that, when people quit... They say they don't really have much of a problem quitting because the symptoms are pretty subtle. And again, that's related to the half-life too. It goes out of your body fairly slowly um, and comes into your body fairly slowly. So you you might feel a headache or a decreased um, appetite. You might feel slightly irritable. But often, those are attributed to either the behavior change of quitting in the first place or 
common daily stressors. And so people, unless their use has risen to a, a point where you can't ignore it, um, often don't realize when, when they are withdrawing what those symptoms actually are coming from. Yeah, and that's what we see the first week in the field, right? When they come to our program, uh, headache, can't sleep, restlessness, and yeah. lack of appetite, and those kinds of things. It's like clockwork. They and were right around like day three or four. They start having these really intense dreams because um, there's some evidence that cannabis suppresses REM sleep. Now we're not sure whether it's suppressing REM sleep or or just your memory of the dreams because it impedes with this part of your sleep cycle called sleep spindles. But yeah, right around day three or four, we start to tell our clients, look, you're going to have some really intense dreams and that's okay. And they're unple- they may be unpleasant, but they will also fade over time. And so a lot of this is just helping them understand what to expect and helping them ride out um, that process. Yeah, exactly. So what else is going on neurochemically with someone that's abusing? Anything else we need to mention? Well, it's worth noting that there are some really contradictory effects. And I want to be cautious when I discuss this because um, the research is still out on this. And the reason the research is out is because it's been hard to study cannabis for a long time. So um, I want to hedge and say this is what we know currently. What we know is that about 8% of people have a psychotic reaction to, um, to cannabis on their first few uses, right? So people without a predisposition uh, THC is a mild psychotic, it, it, not meaning that it makes you psychotic, but it can induce the process that can result in psychosis. So about 8% of people have that. Most of the time, this looks like someone has a panic attack and, and swears off its use, and they don't have an issue. At the same time, uh, cannabidiol has mild antipsychotic effects. So what I tend to see is I see people who tell me, you know, at first, cannabis really helped my anxiety or whatever symptom I was using to treat it. And then every now and then it was, it was awful and terrible, but I keep going back because I had a few of those experiences that were good. It's sort of like that intermittent reinforcement schedule that we see with gambling. You know, it's unpredictable, but you know that every, if you just keep going, you'll have that positive experience again. And a lot of what that's due to is that you're using different strains and different concentrations and different ways of using the substance. So you may actually have a substance that's lower in THC, higher in CBD, CBN, um, and sometimes CBA, which are just all different cannabinoids. And maybe those reduce inflammation and, and have a sedative effect that helps combat anxiety. Um, so it's really hard to, to come down with a blanket statement for clients and for people in general on this is what cannabis will do to you because they're using different strains with different cannabinoid profiles, which really can alter the total effect. So when someone's buying it on the street and they're, they've got a dealer, whatever, they're getting their cannabis, um, they're getting a variation of mix every time? Is that kind of how it works? Well, yeah. So, you know, they'll, a dealer will have a particular strain and so they'll sell that out and then they'll get another shipment and maybe they get from a different source or maybe they grow something different. And especially now with uh, recreational and medical being more popular, it's both easier to find a particular strain and understand what's in it and harder because there's just a more opportunity to experiment. And while we're on this note, I want to make a, a, a note about edibles. So there's two things to consider with edibles. You'll hear people say that the recreational doses um, is 10 milligrams. And that's 10 milligrams THC, not 10 milligram weight of a given bud or, or edible. 
but there's two things that happen that are worth paying attention to. Um, one, edibles are often made with, um, with, with shape. Now, some of that's changing because people are, you know, using, there's just more available so people can isolate and say this edible only has these strains, but a large proportion of them are made with what's called shake, which is the, um, the leftovers from trimmings from all of the strains that they're using. So uh, a recreational shop will often take the shake and use that to um, put in their edibles. They'll, they'll separate the THC trichromes from the plant fibers and put that in an edible. And so rather than getting, you know, let's say you've got um, one, you know, OG Kush, and that has these 13 prominent cannabinoids and, and this level of THC, you're getting all of the strains. And so you might actually be hit with far more broad variety of cannabinoids in addition to THC. Um, so that it tends to just have a stronger effect. There's a, there's sort of a cumulative net effect on the brain where it can increase sensitivity and, and lower the threshold required for neuronal firing. So it makes it easier for these things, for, for your neurons to fire essentially. Um, and that's part of why people feel creative. Anyways, um, so you are getting a broader profile of those. And then the second thing to pay attention to with edibles is that when they're bonded with a fat, um, they and then metabolize, they actually s- switch from uh, delta 9 THC to uh, 11 hydroxy delta 9 THC, which has a higher potency. The, the numbers on that people still have argument on. Studies say that 20% more potent, some studies say 300% more potent, but essentially, um, when you're using an edible, it crosses the blood brain barrier more efficiently. And so a 10 milligram dose from an edible is going to be a very different effect from a 10 milligram dose um, from smoking or vaping. Does the average user know about these variations or or is the average user just saying sometimes it's like this, sometimes it's like that? You know, I'm actually finding that my, you know, my clients that have um, a consistent marijuana use are, are, are actually pretty well informed. They don't necessarily know it um, at the level that you and I are discussing, but they know that edibles are more, more potent. They know they don't know the maybe the mechanism behind it, but they actually are uh, relatively well informed, and and that's actually where the danger comes in, is because they've read just enough to understand that no cannabis isn't going to kill you immediately, and compared to many other drugs, it is much less lethal. Um, and then and then they use that for justification. I I worked at um, I worked in college counseling, and I worked at CU Boulder, which has a has a reputation you may be familiar with. Um, and I actually had students bringing in research papers and saying, "Look, this this proves that I can smoke cannabis because it doesn't it's not harmful." And look, it cures cancer. And um, so I, I, this is something that I had to develop over time and learn how to have a sophisticated conversation that takes dogma out of the way and really hears the information that our, our clients have in a way that can be understanding and also can still challenge them when the use becomes a problem. And that's an important point, and I don't want to go there just yet. How do we talk about it? Because I think that that was one of my big takeaways from your conversation is you can't just say, you know, cannabis is bad, don't do it, right? That's, right. You, we're, we're dealing with a generation now, not just the younger generation. I mean, we're living in a world now where there's a lot more information and there's a lot of arguments for the positive effects. Um, you know, and again, we don't want to get into the weeds of 
the, the legal part of this or, or the positive health effects that, that it can provide, we're talking about seeing young people that are abusing, you know, harming their lives with this substance, right? Um, back up just a step. One of the very first clients I worked with at Pure Life, really cool kid, um, really enjoyed working with him. Um, he was struggling with some psychosis, right? And he was, he was kind of, ha he, you know, from time to time, not even, not even when he was with us, this was just going on in, you know, small little moments here and there where he'd, he'd almost lose touch with reality and say some odd things and had a hard time really kind of grounding himself. We sat down and had a long conversation with him about using marijuana. And he's like, yeah, I, I, I think I'm good guys. Like, you know, obviously he wasn't using while in the program, but his whole point was like, I, I got this. And we were literally begging him and talking about the dangers of what this could do for him specifically. And a year later, he declined further and was, was into a, at that point, a schizophrenia diagnosis, um, which is really scary. So I want to step back just a notch what you'd said about, you know, for some people it produces that psychotic effect. And some people this is like really dangerous. There's a, there's a smaller population where this could really launch them in, you know, into a really destructive mental state. Yeah. And, and I, I got to tell you, I have that conversation quite a bit as well. Um, and the other piece of this is that every, every psychotic episode that you have, doubles your likelihood for another one. So the, the 8% number that I gave earlier is based on people without predisposition in an average population. And then if you add comorbid substance use, if you add other mental health concerns, if you've ever had a psychotic episode before, those numbers all rapidly increase. Um, and again, it can be hard because sometimes they use cannabis and they feel like their mind quiets down and they feel better. Um, but over time, that can still cause disruption. And the other piece of it is that even if they agree to take medications for whatever that disorder is, if you're constantly pumping in a wide variety of uh, neurotransmitters and adjusting your brain's equilibrium in that way, regardless of what it is, you're still introducing instability to the system. And so it can make it harder and harder to resist um, falling off that, that cliff of psychosis again. And, and it is... It is a really tough conversation to have, and it's something that I, I, I see quite often because it's not easy living with mild psychosis. It's painful and disturbing and scary sometimes, and so, of course, you want to reach out to something that feels like it releases dopamine and makes you feel better. Um, and then there's research uh, on CBD that suggests that maybe it does help, but, of course, it's really hard to get pure cannabidiol, and the research isn't out there enough that I would want to support that as an intervention. But, you know, if you have a smart client who's going to go and Google that, they're going to say, oh, look, uh, CBD says, it says CBD reduces, might reduce psychotic symptoms. So I'm going to go get a strain of THC that has some CBD in it. And it just, there's just a, an approach in there that is well-meaning and ultimately destructive. Yeah. And that leads us to the next point, and that is, you know, this is very true of millennials. They're informed. They're smart. They know where to get the information. And to walk in and just say, this is bad, don't do it. Just say no, right? What you and I grew up with um, is not going to be effective in any conversation. And I think what's hard for a lot of the young people in our programs, especially the ones that are really self-medicating with cannabis, 
is they're coming in and they're saying, dude, my buddies are doing it too and they're fine. What's the problem? And that's where sometimes I'll say, you're not going to be able to use the way your friends are. And they make a valid point. They make a very valid point. Like I got half a dozen friends smoking, pulling off school, maintaining relationships, maintaining motivation, all those kinds of things. And, and that's where the argument, you've got to be pretty savvy coming into that argument, right? Our argument maybe isn't the word, but, you know, we're in a situation where people are coming to us to change their lives and we've got to be savvy to that conversation. So how do you approach it for a parent that might be listening or a friend or a brother or sister that's got a, a, a sibling that might be dealing with uh, abuse? How do you approach that conversation in, in an effective way? That's a really good question because it, it is one of the more nuanced things that we have to do in this regard. And, and I like what the way you put it around, you know, these clients are smart and well-informed. I want to capitalize on that. They like to feel smart. They like to feel well-informed. And so I, I try to offer information and see if they can come to their own conclusions throughout the process. And I have the luxury of doing that because working in the wilderness, I know that they're not using while, while we're having these discussions. Um, it can be a little more difficult in outpatient. But what I typically do is I ask my clients, you know, what their ambitions are, what they like most about themselves, and, and what they find most frustrating or that gets in the way of the goals that they have. So I, I'll actually step back from the drug conversation in general. And usually I hear, um, ah, my, you know, my memory is tough or I've got this ADHD thing that I don't really understand or something along those lines. And, and that allows me to first assess their use and then stop talking about use, start talking about goals and struggles. And then I will slowly link in how their use might be affecting those struggles. And so I'll have a, a student talk with me about wanting to do better in school and struggling with memory or motivation or, or attention. And then I get to talk about GABA, like we did earlier, and say, you know that thing that drives you crazy about your difficulties inhibiting your impulse and watching a YouTube video between paragraphs in your textbook, that's actually made worse by the fact that your brain doesn't have enough GABA. Here's what GABA is, and here's how cannabis use affects that. And then we move on, right? So I'm just sort of putting an asterisk on, on the things that are bothering them and then helping them understand how their use might be affecting that. And then, then what I'm doing is I'm aligning their goals with the information I have rather than making them come around to, to you know, what they perceive as my goal. Just some examples of that are that we can find evidence, there's significant evidence out there that um, regular cannabis use can reduce your full-scale IQ. It can slow down your processing speed, which is how well your brain handles information, how efficiently. It can push your working memory scores down. And this is not just while high, this is also um, while sober in between uses. And it can interfere with your ability to transfer memory from short term to long term. So um, one of the examples of this is uh, someone who will um, stay sober all day, study really hard, and then use weed at night to sleep or whatever else they're, they're using it for. What happens is that they go to sleep and they think they're managing their use really well, but they do this regularly enough that they're going to sleep and their brain is going through that REM cycle. And then it gets to this part called sleep spindles, which is where a lot of the transfer 
from short-term to long-term goes. Um, and it's interfering with that. So they've worked really hard, they've stayed sober, eaten, exercised, studied, and then they go to sleep, and that part of their brain that transfers from what they learned that day into long-term is actually interfered with. And so they end up spending their wheels and working harder, even if they feel like they're managing their use responsibly throughout the day. That's fascinating, man. It's destructive. It's quite destructive. You know, and I did my substance abuse counseling certificate, and we studied cannabis in depth. And you are the person that has given me more information than anyone I've ever talked to. Are you, and I don't want mean to put you on the spot here, but are you, like, to the average Joe, would you just say this is a bad idea? If you want to be healthy, if you want to, let's take out the medical side to it. Right. Let's just say to the average Joe going about his or her life, having a good day, having a good life, pretty healthy. Um, that says, hey, I even want to, you know, try it recreationally. For you, philosophically, would you be like, I wouldn't? Oh, man. Um, I would hedge on that one and say that the majority of people who infrequently try cannabis are not going to have negative effects. The average person is not going to have a negative effect. But you have to know yourself well enough to know, okay, if I really like something, am I going to be able to stop myself from using it to an extent that it then becomes destructive? Anything can become destructive with, with, you know, without moderation. So if you're that person that thinks that you can do it once every other week and hold to that, then I mean, maybe. But Again, I, I work with a population who has been down that road and can't. So, um, yeah, that is a difficult question, and I, I, I would have to rely on the research there. And, and again, that's my approach. Just let me tell you everything I know, because as a young adult, you're going to make your own decisions. I want them to be informed and accurate and free of dogma and, and politics, but you're going to make your own decisions. Yeah, I like that answer, because you and I could very well do another podcast about sugar processed sugar right exactly and i could say the same question would you tell someone not to eat sugar ever again and we could probably say here's the list of all the problems that come with it right and so i think that's i think that's a very uh informed answer and and a really relevant point for our clients that are self-medicating and i think you've touched on this already quite a bit but and maybe the question's redundant but you know, where do you see that self-medicating coming in? Who is the profile that's like, oh man, this is a lot of relief, ADHD, anxiety, depression. Those are the kinds of scenarios I'm seeing. What, what else is out there that might indicate if someone's listening right now and struggling with the decision to use or not, who would you say, hey, you might want to take a second look at this if you're experiencing these things? So the... The diagnoses that I see this most commonly with are ADHD or other executive functioning issues, anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, or other psychotic disorders, um, nonverbal learning disorder, sleep struggles, and other substance use, right? So people that have chronic difficulty sleeping will often use like Endica strain to try to sleep and, and it may work well for a while and then suddenly it starts to bleed into problematic use. Um, I also see it a lot with people who are trying to actually control or, or come off of other substances, right? Um, at least it's not meth, at least it's not cocaine, or they're using, you know, uh, hallucinogens and those will just 
uh, deplete all of your neurotransmitters right away, and so then they're using cannabis to control the symptoms of recovery through that. So I, I see those are the ones that I see where I see it's problematic, and, and that's actually mainly because that's where that's what we see with a lot of the mental health disorders. The other side of that is that there are people that are using it to control chronic inflammation or um, autoimmune conditions, or there's some some people that are using pure CBD uh, to help the positive symptoms of dementia, um, the, the sort of acting out symptoms. And, and that's why we have to have this sort of nuanced approach there. Right. We can't say it's all bad. We can't come in and say no one should ever do this. It's all bad, right? What about the lungs for people that are smoking or even vaping? I have asthma. And so I have very sensitive lungs, and, and I, that really stood out to me in my schooling was, you know, we talk about cigarettes being harmful to our lungs. No one ever talks about cannabis being harmful to your lungs if you're smoking, but it's actually way more harmful if I, if I remember right. It is, yeah. Well, and I have a really good personal example of this right now. I'm in Colorado, and my backyard is on fire. And everything that's burning out there is natural and from the earth, and it still hurts my lungs. Yeah. Um, so really my message is if you are um, combusting organic material, it is going to hurt you. Um, it's, not, it's, it's not good. There's some studies that say that eating charred meat actually um, has uh, increases risks of cancer. So really the fundamental message there is you really shouldn't be inhaling burned anything. And so then you see people move to vaping because they, especially in the, in the medical world, are saying that this is the healthier option. And in some ways it is because with vaping, what you're doing is you're um, heating it up to a lower temperature and the, the THC, the trichromes essentially that have the THC and the cannabinoids and the terpenes and the terpenes are part of what makes it smell the way it does. Those all vaporize at lower temperatures than the plant material combusts at. So if you're doing that properly, then yeah, you are actually uh, reducing how much of the burnt fibers you're taking in. And all of the things that you and I have talked about already um, as negative effects are, are related to the THC and the cannabinoids. And so, yes, you do reduce some of that um, inhaled risk, but there's still the risk of the substance itself. And there's also another trick here is that the vast majority of um, vapes on the market right now are what's called inductive, meaning it's just, you know, uh, it's still actually combusting it. It's just doing it in a small chamber, um, and it feels like it, like you're not burning it with a lighter, but it's still actually reaching combustion temperatures. And the vapes that um, the research says does reduce cancer risk is actually from Convec uh, convection, right? So sort of like an oven where you're heating up the whole thing at once without reaching um, combustion temperatures. But that's not what your average, you know, vape on, uh, in the store is going to actually do. Can you talk about dabbing for a second for people that may not know? Yeah. So that's the other question that I end up asking all the time is um, what concentrates are you using, right? And, and we talked about, uh, so briefly, uh, one of the questions that we should be asking is, what's the potency of the, the substance that you're using? And most uh, THC concentration in bud, which is the most common way of, of smoking it, is going to be between 15 and and 30%. The cannabis cup winners are going to be at the, the 30% range. But 
when you start getting into hash and dabs, um, dabs in particular are closer to 60 to 80% THC. And what that is, is you, it's made by butane extraction. So it really is just the extracted trichromes that I've been talking about. Um, and the potency is so high. And then usually the way that you're using dabs is through a dab rig, which means that you're using a very high temperature ignition source um, and vaporizing a lot very quickly. And there's a couple things that happen there. There's the increased potency. Um, so you're getting a much higher dose, much more rapidly. And that, the, I'm, I'm waiting on research to, to really vet this, but I think my assumption is that that sort of rapid intake of high potency actually would increase the percentage of people that have that psychotic reaction. And then just go on YouTube and watch people doing dabs. And, and because they get so much so quickly, the, the gas cools and expands in their lungs um, so much that it actually can hurt. And that's why you see these huge coughing fits. And so it's, it's bad because the temperatures that you're inhaling at are higher and the, and the concentrations are so much higher and the dosing is harder to manage. And then beyond dabs, you actually have shatter, which um, looks like, it looks kind of like meth um, in the sense that it's this sort of crystallized thing at the bottom of a glass container. Um, and that can be up to 90%. And so uh, I want to make one quick note on um, on overdose, if I can. Uh, there's a, a 1978 study that's often cited for um, why it's hard to or impossible to overdose from cannabis. Um, and we have to introduce this concept of the LD50, the, the lethal dose for 50% of people. So about 50% of people will have a lethal reaction at this particular dose. And this study says that you would have to um, consume 1,500 pounds, pounds of cannabis in, I think, like an hour period in order to reach the, the lethal dose. Um, and that's that's a lot. That's impossible. You would, you'd pass out from asphyxiation before you'd be able to actually um, take that much, but you can, um, that study was done at 4% THC concentration. If you take that math and you apply it to a 30% concentration, that's 200 pounds. At 90% concentration, it's around 67 pounds. That is still a very, very large amount. Um, but if you, if you add in comorbid mental health issue, issues, other substance use, um, or any other predispositions, we very, very quickly get to a level that, that can be concerning. Um, and I think that that's really what we should be paying attention to, is how are concentrates changing the common wisdom on, on what's actually harmful with cannabis? Because we're seeing much different reactions to these much higher doses. And I think it's important to note as well to the baby boomers out there, the, the stuff your kids are smoking is far stronger than what you guys were. Yes, 1% to 4% is what was... Um, well, and there's there's some debate on this, right? So in between the 60s and 70s, a lot of studies came out that were saying increases sociability, decreases anxiety, and that's that's based on one to four percent THC. Um, however, studies at that time also uh, relied on donation because you, the government couldn't grow their own weed to study, and so if you're going to donate your weed, you're going to donate the worst of it. So <laughs> you know it is stronger. <laughs> than what we were, what, what they may have been using um, back in the 60s and 70s, but it's not as much stronger as the research would have you believe because people don't donate their best stuff. Anything else you feel like is important to mention um, yeah. bef before we switch gears a little bit? Two things. One, regardless of 
um, of the substance that you're using, the propensity for addiction is actually related just as strongly to how you take that substance because the psychological addiction happens between um, stimulus and response, right? So if I have a if I have a craving or if I take an edible and I take the same dose of edible, it's still going to take 30 minutes to two hours for me to feel that effect. And so the longer the distance between the time you take the substance and feel the effect, the harder it is to, to get addicted. Your brain likes to pair those things together. So the way that you're taking it, how quickly you feel it, also has an effect. If you're smoking, especially if you're smoking something like a concentrate really quickly, or if you're doing sublingual and you're feeling it very quickly there, you're actually going to have a stronger and more quick addiction response than you would using the same exact dosage where um, it takes you longer to feel it. So that's one of the things to consider. Um, and then just finally, I, I really want your audience to hear that my approach here isn't weed is evil or weed is the best. It's how do we have a really potent discussion on it and how do we recognize how it may or may not interfere with the values and goals that you have in your life. One of the most subtle and problematic things that I think weed does is it insulates you from mild anxiety, boredom, and restlessness. So that time when you're sitting at home watching a TV show that you've watched a hundred times, um, if you were to not be using at the time, you'd probably get bored and, and your brain wants stimulus. And so you might seek out an activity, a hobby, you might do something, you might um, be bored enough to do the dishes, who knows? But boredom is healthy. Restlessness is healthy. We, it, it propels us to do something and to seek stimulus. But what cannabis does is it provides a like background hum of stimulus. And, and because of that um, lowered threshold for synaptic activity, it means that that joke that you've heard a hundred times is a little funnier, or the music is a little better, and the food tastes a little better. And so you actually don't feel the drive to go and seek stimulus as much because sitting on the on the couch or wherever you may be watching you know media is more satisfying than it would be without it which is part of the reason why people do it but it but over time it insulates you from that drive of creativity and ambition you know it's funny because we're all struggling with this not not the fact that we're using cannabis to medicate but you could have that very same conversation with me about my phone. What do I do when I'm restless and bored and want to be stimulated? You know, what's going on on Instagram? What's, you know, do I have a work email? Is something going on at work that, that I can engage in? And um, so I, I, I really appreciate your comments because I think it's part of a much larger conversation. And that is, I think all of us are having a harder time. And it's easy to throw it on the younger generation, but we all got to own it. We're all having a harder time owning our boredom and our discomfort and and that sort of stuff and and so I think it's really relevant to your comments definitely so as we switch gears a little bit I just want to you you wrote a great article about low motivation and it really resonated with me and it honestly challenged me quite a bit because a lot of the young people that come in our program I do this activity with them where they do you know, I, I have them try to identify things that they're inherently and naturally really good at and things that they're inherently and naturally not good at. And I'm always shocked at how many people write down, I'm inherently, like I have low motivation and I always challenge them on that. And 
you know, I've been saying for a long time, that's not a thing that you have, you know, and even challenging myself recently with motivation where not waiting to be motivated to, to act. And, you know, I come from a, I played a lot of football and rugby growing up and, it, you know, you, you didn't wait to feel like it. You, you did it, right? And, and that's why your article I thought was fascinating and I've been dying to talk to you about that because I think, you know, do I need to challenge that a little bit and op do I need to be open to the fact that some people may have, quote unquote, low motivation? Yeah, and and, and I, I want to say too that I, I grew up in a military family in the South, and so I, I heard very similar messages growing up. And, and there is some benefit to learning to push through that, uh, the difficulty that you may have with motivation. Um, but I don't typically think of it in terms of low motivation, right? I, I recognize that often my clients have a desire to change. They struggle to put the rubber to the road, so to speak. And we look at that as, as low motivation, but really it's more of like a, like a behavioral apathy, an inability to translate that desire into action. Um, and so I usually start with validating the desire they have, right? But just because I want clean laundry doesn't mean that that's enough to get me to clean my laundry. Um, and some of the research says that you know, there, this is a really complex topic that I'm going to try to, to simplify, and I am by no means an expert. People make entire careers out of this discussion. But there are parts of the brain involved in um, multiple steps of motivation or overcoming behavioral apathy. And the takeaway is that there are people that struggle with um, higher levels of apathy or difficulty making changes um, work two to three times as hard as someone without that. So we're seeing people that have a parent that may be wired more efficiently um, who says, well, why can't you just do all these things? And the student's saying, I want to, but they keep getting trapped or stuck in this process. And part of it is because their brains really do have to work much harder to accomplish the same thing. Um, and there's, there's some really discrete stages in this that I think it's worth knowing so that you can ask yourself, at what point in the process do you fail? So the first step really is evaluating the effort and the reward of initiating a new behavior. So how much work will this require and will it be worth it for me to do? And this is where a lot of people get stuck. If you've got you know, certain mental health disorders, you've got this, this sort of trait apathy, um, it feels like the effort is bigger than it actually is, and it feels like the reward is lower. And so there's a uh, there's that part of your brain that's making this incorrect assumption right from the get-go. And so then it makes it more likely that you're not going to do that. And then you have to weigh the resource cost and the benefits. Do I actually have the resources that are required to make this change? So maybe I think it's worth it, and maybe you know I, I have this estimate of how much it will require, but then I Maybe if I have low self-esteem, I underestimate how much resource I actually have. And then the rest of this moves into a um, much quicker, more neurological process. You, your premotor cortex gets ramped up in anticipation of this action. And then you have to initiate the action, which can be a struggle, especially for people with um, depression or impulsivity. And then you have to really clearly attune to the rewards or consequences of that action. And this is another thing that I see my clients struggle with. They'll go through this whole process, they'll white knuckle their way through making a change, and then at the end of it, they're so exhausted that they don't ask themselves, 
how did I do? And, and how do I feel now that I've tried this new thing? They're just so relieved that it's over that they don't allow themselves to experience the positive feelings of accomplishment, which means that you're not activating the reward center. And if you're not rewarding your brain for making this new behavior, uh, you're not going to do it again. And so it's really helpful to, to, to go through these stages with clients and say, where do you feel like you get most stuck? And, and how can we help you understand, okay, my brain is always going to overestimate the work that a task requires. And if I just know that about myself, then I can, I can sort of tune my expectations and tell my brain, all right, I, I hear that you're afraid of that. And time and time again, you've shown me that you're wrong, right? And, and allowing us to, to have this discussion and to move through these processes without some of the judgment that we accidentally put on our clients or on our loved ones. I really like that a lot. And I think it's, it really is kind of where the rubber meets the road on wilderness and adventure therapy, right? And something you said that we see all the time, I'm sure you do too, and that is this person sitting there going, I cannot do this. There's no way. I can't do it. And they do it and they surprise themselves. They really underestimate their abilities, right? And, and it's, it's magical. I mean, that's, I think, what keeps me coming back is I'm inspired by our clients that do that and push through that. It's, it's admirable, right? And it's easy to sit there and say, well, just do it. I did it. I can do it. You know, and I learned a long time ago that that's never going to work, right? Like the fact that it's easy for me or I enjoy it um, doesn't mean it is for everybody else. And I, I think that's one of my favorite parts of the job is getting to sit down and watch people and have that conversation as you guys do, I'm sure, you know, and then, and then get to see them put it into play. Right. And it, it always happens on a hike week, right? <laughs> I can't hike. Yeah. I can't hike. I, you know, uh, whatever it may be, there's a million reasons or, or, you know, with young adults, I'm checking out of the program and, um, it's like, Hey, you got this. Like, you don't even know you, you, you do, but you do. And I like that part about being able to help them recognize that reward. I struggled with that personally. I'll do something really hard. And I, you know, I have a coach that I work with and he's like, dude, Andrew, good job. Like you did it. Like, take a minute, go get ice cream. Like, bravo. You know, and, and, and I'm, I'm actually very motivated and driven and, for me, I'm like, no, 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 no. Well, what's next? And I, you know, and so I like that you you talked about that lack of recognition or that recognition being so important because I I agree that's a part that can be easily missed on both sides of motivation. Definitely, especially if if you've got you know someone who's been struggling with this for a while and they've got a list of a hundred things long that they want to change about themselves. And so they accomplish the first 10 and they're like, all right, what's number 11? Rather than looking back and going, look at those 10 things I just did. And the, the other really important thing here is um, we have to, you have to take care of yourself. The, fundamentally, we are an organism. And as we talked about with marijuana, if you don't have the right um, chemicals in your brain, it makes this harder. You know, and one of those that's involved in... Um, behavior change and, and in actually willpower is serotonin. It's, if you don't have enough serotonin, it's hard to start and maintain a behavior. And I, I want to be clear, when I say don't have enough, um, I'm, I'm speaking very generally. It could be that you don't produce enough. It could be that you don't um, process it well enough. It could be that 
you know, there could be a lot of ways. So, so don't take that necessarily literally, but we do know that serotonin is involved in volition, that dopamine is involved in reward center for new um, behaviors, and that GABA is involved in the inhibition of behaviors that we'd like to change. And so if you're not taking care of yourself physically, you're not taking the medications you need, or you're not outside um, in the sun, you're not physically active and eating a, a healthy diet, all of this stuff gets harder. And if you already struggle with apathy or motivation or whatever we want to call it, then the best way to start making that change is to actually take care of yourself physically so that you have the resources to then overcome some of these mental habits that we've created. And understanding and having compassion for yourself or your loved one or your child or your spouse, whatever that happens to be, whose brain may literally require more effort and more resources to make the changes that come easily to you. And that's where it all makes sense, right? We see our clients. I'm not I'm not trying to be salesy here, if anybody's listening, but like this is what we do, right? And we see our clients one weekend flat, unmotivated, lost, scared. Week two, week three, the eyes start coming alive. They start having a little bit more ability to cope with what's going on around them. And because of all those things, the sunshine, the the sleep, the diet, the everything um, and that's our mission at OBH right the outdoor behavioral healthcare council is furthering this um, across all of our programs and more hopefully um, how do you have this conversation how do you avoid when you have a conversation like this because and this is this has been my biggest fear as I've been thinking about your article is how do you frame this in a way that it's not one more thing that they can go, oh, I don't have to do that. I, I have a genetically, I'm not as motivated, right? Without giving them an out. There's a learned helplessness that I think we, we also deal with in our work. And how do you frame it in a way that is empowering and not one more thing that someone might say, well, no, it's true. My brain is, it, I, I don't have this, right? And that's, I guess I would say is my fear of opening up that can of possibly worms of like someone taking that and running with it and using it as an excuse. I mean, any good, right. good therapist I know can do that, but I'm just curious, how do you, how do you handle that conversation in a meaningful way? Yeah. And that is, that is one of the pitfalls here, right? Is that someone whose cognitions are distorted enough to use um, this information against themselves is going to do that. Um, but it, I actually typically have two different conversations. I had the conversation with families because we work with the whole system saying lay off on the, on the motivation discipline conversation long enough to experience some compassion for how difficult this may actually be. Fundamentally, your, your son or daughter may, they most likely want to be better. They want to feel better. They want to make these changes that you desperately want them to make. And so if you can come at them with compassion and we can take the pressure that they felt from you off, then all I have to deal with is the pressure that they're putting on themselves. And then my conversation with clients is, is twofold. And I, I tried to strike this balance in my, in my article on this because it is tough. It's, I want you to understand what's happening for yourself chemically and neurologically so that you don't think of this as necessarily a character flaw. And it is still your responsibility to make this change. I want you to understand what the change is and, and where, where it comes from. But you, with this knowledge, now have to do something with it. And this is where it can sound a lot like bootstrapping, 
But what it is, is brain training, essentially. And so what I'll do is I'll help them set goals that are within their reach. And it's sort of like that idea with depression, no zero days, right? What is the one thing you did today that was effort that you can praise yourself for? And we start really, really small, right? And what, what if that's just I brushed my teeth? What if that's I showed up to session? What if that's, you know, I, I did this particular therapy assignment? And then I spend significant time um, ex- being excited about the small efforts that we're seeing, which then helps them be excited about that, which makes it easier to then graduate up and titrate to larger and larger demand situations. So really it's managing expectations, taking this out of some sort of personal failing of character and treating it like a medical condition. It's not your, you know, the, the analogy here is it's not your fault that you have diabetes and you still have to take your insulin. Aaron, you've given me a lot of your time today and I really appreciate it. Where can people find you uh, if they want to reach out? Yeah, so you can go to our website, openskywilderness.com. I've got a profile on there, but you're also welcome to reach out to me uh, directly via email, and that's dr. Wallace, so D-R-W-A-L-L-I-S at openskywilderness.com. I can't wait to see what you study and research and put out next. I'm following you. I'm officially stalking you, man, because you're really getting into the details in areas that we need and that is really, that's, you know, we're all benefiting from that. And that's one of the main reasons I really wanted to interview you. So I just thank you for the work. Thank you for the extra work that you're putting in beyond just serving your clients, but putting out really quality information that's benefiting the field. I'm just following my heart and trying to share it. Cool, man. Well, hey, thanks a ton and um, look forward to seeing you at the next conference. All right. Talk to you then. Hey, guys. Thanks again for joining this episode of In the Trenches with me, your host, Andrew Taylor. If you like what you're hearing, I would love it if you would subscribe to my podcast. You can find me on iTunes and SoundCloud. It's In the Trenches with Andrew Taylor. If you want to get in touch with Aaron, Dr. Wallace, you can find him at Dr. Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, at openskywilderness.com. He's a wilderness therapist at Open Sky. Their website is openskywilderness.com. Fantastic wilderness therapy program and a good guy to be in touch with if you have any more questions about what we talked about today. So thanks for joining and hope to see you next time.